I love you. Good to see you this morning, and thank you so much also for those who are in the gym and those who are also in the old chapel. Welcome. Good to have you as well. And then those who are listening online, thank you so much uh, for being here. And it's an honor and privilege to be able to open up the Word of God and uh, see what it says uh, to all of us, knowing that when I open up the Word of God and preach it, it's saying a lot to me, too. In fact, I think I get more out of it than anybody else in the entire room, um, as we have looked into We're looking at First John, and we're going through the book of of First John, uh, verse by verse. And uh, you might ask a question, well, what is the title of this message and why would this be the title of the message so that you may believe? Uh, the reason why it's the title of the message is because that's what the uh, book of First John is about, so that you may know that you believe. When uh, John wrote the book of John, which he wrote a total of five books, and when he wrote the book of John, he wanted to tell his audience or the people that you're writing it to why he wrote it. So he says, I wrote this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what he said right at the end of the book. So we can read the book of John, and we know exactly what John is trying to communicate. Is communicating is that he wrote it so we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then we look at the book of 1 John. Why did he write the book of 1 John? It says right in chapter 5, I wrote this so that you know that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that is where the title came, um, came from. As we're looking at this book, um, it's a very intense book, I'll just let you know. It's a very powerful book. And what I mean by very powerful book is there's a couple passages that are just really, really bold. Uh, So bold that some people have misinterpreted them and started an entire different religion. Um, I mean, one passage, do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. I mean, that's an aggressive, aggressive passage. And the religions have started monasticism is, is completely going towards that. We can't have anything with the world. We've got to hate the world. That's not what the passage said. But you can see these strong, strong statements in the book of 1 John. And when these statements are made, you want to know what they say, what they mean inside their context because they are powerful statements. We're going to look at a passage this morning that another very, very powerful passage that other religions have come from. And, uh, you know, some religions believe that once you become a Christian that you no longer sin. Sin is gone. Well, where do they get that? I will say they get it out of the interpretation of the passage that we're going to work out this morning. <laughs> so is that correct? No, it's not correct because I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We, we sin. When we become a Christian, we still sin. But there is an aggressive passage that we're going to work through this morning. And we do. We want to interpret it correctly. So it's going to be very detailed and very logistical as we work through it. So let's uh, just uh, look at point number one. A believer doesn't make a practice of sinning. A believer does not make a practice of sinning. Last week, we gave you the most happiest verse in the Bible. <laughs> Behold. I have this verse that's in your notes again, and I want to do some review, and I want to touch upon this verse because it's going to lead us into the second verse. First John 3, a little bit of review from last week. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The first word is what? Behold. Behold means seeing, but it's a little bit seeing on steroids in the sense, I see and I can't believe. 
I see and oh wow, it's absolutely amazing. I see and it's absolutely phenomenal. It's, it's seen with it sinking completely deep into your heart rather than just your eyes. It blows past your eyes, blows past your mind into every part of you. Behold is what the author is saying. We even talked about last week is that this is an outburst. John is writing the book and telling us what believing is about and then all of a sudden he's just like, you know what, it just hit me hard. Literally, even steps away from writing. He continues to write because we see it on paper, but steps away from writing and just says, I just can't believe it. I cannot believe how much God loves me. Knowing the truth made his rationale go crazy. It just hit him almost between the eyes. Extremely happy verse. Behold, I cannot believe what? That the Father loves me in the manner that he has showed it. Behold, I cannot believe that. I am a child, but yet since I am a child, it's still not revealed what's going to happen to me. It's going to be even better. Behold it, I cannot believe that someday, I have to believe it, but I can't believe it, that someday I'm going to be like him. Someday, again, I will see him face to face. Very moving passage, aggressive passage, exciting passage. Well, if you look at the passage this morning, which is starting in verse 4, he changes his tone pretty aggressively. To extremely excited, to very, very pointed. Very, very pointed. In fact, it's probably one of the most pointed passages in the Bible. Let's just read it, and then we read it, work, work through it. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Very powerful statement. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or even knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous and, and as he is righteous. And whoever practices, makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. We read this all in its context, and you take notice and say, oh my goodness, John is bipolar. (laughs) He's extremely excited, but then all of a sudden something else takes place. Whoa, look out. Look out for this. John is not bipolar. What, what John is, is John is excited about the love of God, but there is something threatening the love of God. There is something threatening your heart that screams, behold, I cannot believe the manner of love the Father has bestowed on me. There is something threatening, and John wants you to know it. He's saying this is absolutely exciting. Salvation is absolutely exciting, but there's something on the table that's coming after you. There's something that is at war with you. There is something that wants your heart. This is what the passage is doing. So we definitely want to understand what it means. So we broke it up into three different areas. What is sin? If you see, sin is going all the way through that passage. So we definitely want to understand what that word means. And then we also want to look at two aspects of sin. It gives us another dynamic of what sin is. And then John's firm instructions on how to not fall under the domain of sin. So what is sin? Number two, here's the definition. Sin is missing the mark. Missing the mark. If you're going to miss the mark, you have to first have a mark. 
And as we are believers um, in God, we believe that this is our mark. In fact, we're just going to take it and say, this is, this, is, this is God who created, and God who rules, and God who is king, and God who knows what is best for us, God who understands our dynamics, understands our psyche, understands of who we should be. It's also the gospel in regards to salvation. In fact, every answer we believe is, is right, is right here. So if, if this is your mark, what sin is, is in the, and then you hit the mark, what you're doing, if you hit the mark, in other words, you look at this Bible, you grab a hold of it, you hit the mark, you are functioning the way that you were designed to originally function. That's what you're doing. If you open up the Bible and you do what it says, you're, des- you're functioning the way you're designed to function. You are being who you were originally designed to be. If you open up the Bible and you obey it, and you love it, and you embrace it, you're being who you are originally designed to be. In fact, if you look at the Bible and you hit the mark, you're giving you and the world a taste of heaven on earth if you hit the mark. That's how powerful this book is. It explains to you that this is the mark, and if you hit it, you understand what? What even took place in the garden before sin, which is missing the mark, has come into the world. So let's look at sin. If you miss the mark, what's going to happen? You're functioning the way you weren't designed to function. You're functioning the way that you weren't designed to function in the Garden of Eden before sin even came to the world. The Garden of Eden was perfect. Was King of kings and Lord of lords was walking with man in complete harmony. There was harmony. There was good. There was right. There was correct. There was perfect. Everything was working well because they were in the mark. But when sin entered the world and we embrace it, we are missing the mark, not functioning the way that we're supposed to function. We're not being who we are supposed to be if we are disobeying the word. And also you're bringing a little taste of hell on earth rather than heaven when you miss the mark. So just to give you an example, if you lie, you're not supposed to lie. Why? Because you're supposed to function in truth. So it's just a simple statement. Do not lie. And if you obey that, you will hit the mark and function the way you're designed to function. Your relationship will function the way you're designed to function. The the country will function the way it's designed to function. Everything will function the way it's designed to function if you choose not to lie. But if you miss the mark, well, you start to shatter your relationships. You start to get a reputation of somebody that can't be trusted because you completely miss the mark. Drunkenness. I mean, it says in the Bible, do not get drunk. Why would it say do not get drunk? Because when you're drunk, you are functioning the way you're not supposed to function as a father. You're functioning the way you're not supposed to function as a mother, as a dad. See, what happens is that obey the mark, and you'll function the way you're supposed to function. Do not obey it. You will not function. Adultery, it's the same thing. You want to Taste of hell on earth, committing adultery will give you a taste, your family a taste, and everybody a taste of hell on earth. So the Bible says in the Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery. And if you do not commit adultery, you will hit the mark and function the way you're supposed to function in a relationship. But if you miss it, what's going to happen? You're even given a, a taste of hell here on earth. Now, the Bible carries more power than you can possibly imagine, the most powerful thing um, on earth. And what I mean by that is that the Bible's written in two places. It's written, it's written in a book and on paper, but it's also written somewhere else. you know where it's written? It's written on the human heart. The Bible is written on the human heart. So there is even a law inside of our conscience 
that is inside of us. So if the Bible says it, our conscience is going to work with it. It it is. It's going to work with every single word that that it even says. So let's just give you an example. You know, say you want to build a country. Uh, And I mean, you're going to have to use your imagination here. I'm going to completely and entirely build a country. I want this country to function the way that it's supposed to function. Well, what are you going to say? Okay, we got to make sure that there is integrity in this country. We got to make sure there's no cheating in this country. We have to make sure that there's love in this country. Well, what you're doing is you're writing the Bible, but you're writing it from your heart. I mean, it's easier just to pick up the Bible and then base it on the country and have a correct country. But see, that's what sin is. Sin is completely and entirely missing the mark, and it's written here, and it's also written on our heart and on our conscience. And when we miss the mark, what happens? We know it. Even if you don't believe you know it. What do I mean by that? Tiger Woods, you know, had a, you know, committed adultery. And when he committed adultery, why did he get thrown off under the bus? Why did he get thrown under the bus from unbelievers, from the news, from everybody? Is because they believed that it was wrong, but what mark were they going against? You see what happens is the Bible gives every single dynamic of what we should be as people and sin is a Bible word that's saying, when you do this, you are missing the mark. All right, let's look into the two different aspects of sin, because that's what sin is, but you need to understand that as we go into these aspects of sin. Sin, sinful acts, and number three. Sinful acts is a plural word, meaning multiple. It's violations, disobedience, disobedience rebellion action, rebellious actions, and then it's a missing the immediate mark. So let's just give you an example. It's uh, simple. Lying, stealing, cheating, swearing, gossiping, lusting, adultery, murder, malice. It's all in the Bible. Here's the mark. We're missing it. But we're missing the immediate mark when we do it. A mark that is right in front of our face. And as it's right in front of our face, we're not obeying it. And this is what takes place with all of us. And that is what is called sin. 1 John 1, 9, it says 1, 7, but it's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, you notice that's plural. Confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So this verse that were read, you say, well, hold on a second. If I'm a Christian, then I should not be sinning at all ever again, that I never sin again. Well, that's not the case because John just mentioned in 1 John chapter 1 is that you are going to sin and you can't even be a Christian until you confess it, that you are having sins. So what do you do? You confess the sins. God, please forgive me. And this is going to be consistent taking place. Here's some words of a very, very righteous man, probably one of the most righteous guys in the world that uh, changed the world with his writing. His name is Apostle Paul. Here's some words that he says. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I had somebody says, you know, I don't understand the Bible, but I understand that verse. (laughs) All of us understand that. Why do I do what I don't want to do and I do not do what I need to do? This is a very righteous person and we can all relate. We want to do good, but yet what happened? We still have this, we miss the immediate, miss the immediate marks. So sinful acts is the first aspect. The next aspect, which is a little bit more confusing, is number four. It's the domain of sin. 
It is singular. And what does it mean? It's a powerful master, God, king, lord, ruler, savior, missing the ultimate mark. Jesus left heaven, he came to earth, and he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins, putting my sins and your sins upon his shoulder. And then after he died, he went to the grave three days later. He rose again, and he did this so our sins would be washed away. He is our king. He is our Lord. He is our master. He is our savior. He is our ruler. It is to him that we bow the knee and say, King of kings and Lord of lords, I'm saved because of him. I'm saved because what he has done. But there's an aspect of sin called dominion of sin. Romans 6, 6 says this, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, talking about crucified with Jesus Christ, so that our body of sin might, not, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. What is this verse saying? In this verse, we see sin as a powerful master that enslaves you It makes even our body the body of sin. It masters our body. It controls our body. It lords our body. It is our king. It is our ruler. It is the one that we bow our knee to. Domain means dominion, dominant. The one thing that dominates you. What is it? You know, it could take something very, very good and making it your ultimate. Taking something very, very good and making it your ultimate, your king, your lord, your ruler, your master, your savior. Let's just look into the dynamics of this, and we do need to go quickly, but it is, um, we do want to get this. We have an old nature that is found in Christ, and, and um, when we have an old nature that's found in Christ, we're born into this nature. Uh, we're, born as, we're born as sinners. Now, if you are not religious and you want nothing to do with God, um, I will tell you that and you're not a believer, you're still ruled. You still have a king. You still have a master. You still have a savior. Let's look at this. You're still going to worship something because that's what we do. We worship something. We worship money, power, fame, sex, security. We're, gonna, we're worshipers, period. We're going to worship something. If it's not God, it's going to be something else. We all have a Lord, meaning that we are submissive to something. We're submissive to our desires, our passions, our drives, our lusts. They're, they're lording over us. Uh, we have a ruler, pride rules, greed rules. Selfishness rules, anger rules. You have a savior. Money saves. Do you know that? Well, sometimes a lot of us feel it. If I just had enough money, then I'd be at peace. It would save me from frustration, anxiety, depression. Just give me enough money. It's money saves. Relationship saves. Alcoholism saves. Drunkenness. Drugs save. What are you doing? You're pulling away from the immediate and going into this temporary world that, oh, everything feels good. And then you wake up in the morning and you see that everything is not good, even though it feels good, but yet we use these tools as something to save. That's what is it talking about, that your body, you're enslaved, and your body is literally saying, this is my king, this is my Lord, this is my God. Romans six sixteen says, do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? According to this verse, every person hands himself over to something. And the Bible says every person hands themselves over to God. Is it Jesus? Or is it even something else? I want to go clear back to the ancient text in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, um, uh, Moses is, is writing and he's going to give us the law. It's the, the foundation of, 
of when sin arises. And here's the words. He gives us the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of what? Slavery. And then his first commandment, number one commandment, you shall not have no other gods before me. Now, Pastor D has been talking in his class about typology. What this is, is a type of gospel. In other words, we've taken it from the Old Testament, and it completely came alive in the New Testament. What happens is that Israel was brought out of slavery, and then the first commandment is worship me and no other because I saved you. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus saves you. You're no longer a slave to sin. And then Jesus says, I shall be your God. And he even said the Ten Commandments is love God and love people, and you've accomplished everything. But what's interesting about that verse is that you shall have no other gods before me. Well, how many gods is there? According to that verse, it says it looks like there's many gods. But what is it referring to? What it's referring to is you should have no other kings. You should have no other lords. You should have no other saviors. You should have no other rulers before me. I should be on the top. I should be on the top. First commandment. The second commandment is very similar to the first commandment. So we're only on one commandment. Now let's move to the second commandment, which gives even more dynamics of the first commandment. It's num- and number four. He says, you shall not make yourselves an idol, something that you worship. Remember, this is commandment number two. In the form of what? Anything. In heaven, above or beneath the earth, or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am the Lord your God, and I am jealous. He's trying to clear everything up. He's clearing everything up. Nothing in heaven. A lot of religions out there. We worship different gods in heaven. He's saying, no, I am the one, the only God. Don't worship any other gods in heaven. Don't worship anything on the earth. What is that? All the things that are in front of us. So yes, it does apply to us. And then he goes, even beneath the earth. I don't know, where, where do you worship under beneath the earth? I don't, I don't know exactly what's being worshipped under earth, but he's covering all of his bases. Or even in the sea. If there's a sea creature, don't worship it either. I am a jealous God, and I want to be your king. I want to be your Lord. I want to be your master. I want to be your savior, is what this verse is saying. The domain of sin is coming after you to say, I want you to be dominated by something else rather than the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, as I'm explaining this, I just want to give you an example. And it's probably the best example you can give. And the reason why is because we know that this person went to hell. To get an example of the domain of sin, we have to understand the person went to hell so it can be very, very clear. Well, this person went to hell because the Bible says his name was Judas. In Acts, it says that it would be better if he was not born. So we know that he went to hell. But there's something about Judas giving this example. Something about Judas that um, in his life, he's, he's one of the 12 disciples. And being the 12 disciples means that he listened to every, maybe not every one of them, but I'll just say every one of Jesus' sermons. Judas also left for three years his life behind and followed Jesus. In fact, he even says that Jesus sent the disciples out. When he sent the disciples out, what did they do? They evangelized to people. Judas was one of those disciples that evangelized to people. In fact, if you look at the greatest Christians on earth back at that time, it'd be the 12 people that were right next to Jesus. And who was one of them? It was Judas. But he had another God. He had another God. If you look at his story, you see that he is the money collector for the disciples. 
So all the money that was given to Jesus and the disciples for them to distribute to different people came in, and Judas was the main handler of the money. And as he handled the money, according to the Bible, he uh, stuck a lot in his pocket. I'll give this to the poor, but I'll keep on sticking. He filled his pockets with the money, and he did it, I'm assuming, for three years. I'm going to give us a lot of explanation. But he did it to the point where it was the king, ruler, drive, savior of his life. And how do we know that? is because when Jesus was getting ready to be crucified before he went to the cross, Mary Magdalene came in and said, my God, my Savior, and took some perfume, some oil. It was burial oil that was supposed to go in Lazarus' grave after Lazarus died. But remember, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So she says, I don't need this anymore. I'm going to put it on my master, my Savior, my King, my Lord. And what did she do? She dropped it all over Jesus' feet. And it all fell down into his feet. She grabbed her hair and she started washing her feet. How much was that oil worth? How much was that perfume worth? Well, if you look at it, there's a whole bunch of different figures, but um, the figure that would put it into the inflation market, it would be a year's wage. So if you're looking at a year's wage, the average wage in America is $68,000 dumped over Jesus' feet. And as $68,000 is jumped over her feet and scattered in her hair in complete waste, Judas popped. (laughs) He said, no more. And he lost it. He had Jesus his God, and he had money his God, and there was one that triumphed over him, and he lost it. And when he lost it, what did he do? He went right to the Sanhedrin and said, I'm selling them. Just give me some money. Give me some dollars. I'll just, just take it. This is... This is too much. My God was just destroyed at a man's feet. But it was a man's feet. It wasn't his God's feet. Do you see how he's taking him as Lord? Romans 12, 1, 12. When we say, Judas, how could Judas do this? This is an explanation how Jesus can do this. For even though they knew God, these are people that are believers, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. You see, a king of kings and lord of lords. You know him, but you did not honor him. You did not give him thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God did what? Gave them over in the lust of their hearts impurity, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they know that, they know the mark, they not only did it, but they also gave hearty approval to those who practices it. This is the mark. This is the mark. They're believers. What happened? They say, well, we're believers, but we have another God. We have another ruler. We have another master. We have another savior. We have something else that's way beyond God that drives me. And God, in that passage, says, I give up. I'm not your king. I'm not your Lord. Take it. And when they took it, what happened? The sin increases and increases, 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 increases. Number five, Satan's strategy, and I'm going to move really quickly here. Satan's strategy is to use the acts of sin to pull um, pull you and others under the domain of sin. 
Satan wants your money to be your Lord. He wants your family to be your Lord. We hear aggressive statements in the New Testament. You know, do not love your, your, um, your father and mother more than me. This is what Jesus is saying. I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. Satan wants your job to be lord. He wants your hobbies to be lord. And he's going to give you little tastes of things to move you towards sin being your complete and entire domain where he's like, I don't even want anything to do with God anymore. I just want this. So how do you know that you're falling under the domain of sin? Here's a fast test. Something that you, you can put any of these, um, any, any of these in the underlining statement. When you lie to get it, is money your Lord? Well, you can ask the question, do I lie to get it? Do you cheat to hang on to it? You grow hard, heart, when you have it, and do you fold when you lose it? See, we're under attack by Satan. He's not trying to just destroy us and ruin us. He's trying to give us another God besides Jesus. So when temptation takes place, we can split, just like Judas split. I want to look at John's firm instructions on how to not fall under the domain of sin as we give an understanding of what the domain is. Well, we see it in the passage. What is it? Don't make a practice of sinning. <laughs> look at the passage. Look at the top of the passage. When we see this word, sin just comes out. Don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. But as it's talking about sin, look at the, look at, I have it all but underlined, look at the word that is before, practice. Don't practice, don't practice, don't practice, don't practice, don't practice. Well, what does practice mean? Letter A, practice. Poyeho means abide, abode, to stay. Abode means what? Taking residence in, that's what abode means. Stay means getting comfortable with. I want to reread this passage with given the definition of what practice is. And as we read it, it'll give us an understanding of what's going on in the passage. First John 3 says this. Everyone who abides in, taking up residence in, or getting comfortable with sin, also abides in, taking, resi- taking up residence in, or getting comfortable with lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he came, that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in God, it's interesting they put abides because this is all about abiding. This is all about sitting in. This is all about taking residence in keeps on abiding in, taking up residence in, and getting comfortable with sinning. No one who abides in, taking up residence in, or getting comfortable with sinning has either seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever abides in, taking up residence in, or getting comfortable with righteousness is righteous. See it in the righteousness. Whoever abides in, taking up residence in, or getting comfortable with sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes or abides in, taking up residence in, or getting comfortable with sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Don't set your house up on sin. The gospel is written on our heart. When the gospel is written on our heart and we sin, a conscience is going to come. And when a conscience comes, it's going to do what? It's going to attack you. (laughs) Have you ever had a conscience attack you? Yes, they're aggressive. They attack you. What you do with it is very, very important. What many do with it is they want to get rid of it. They want to put it out. And as you push it and push it and push it, you're making steps towards abiding and getting comfortable with the process of sinning. Number seven, confess sin. Do not water it down, justify or make an excuse for it. 
There's another person that happened the same time that Judas betrayed God, but this person was another disciple, and I think he did something just as bad as what Judas did. I mean, it's, it's a horrific thing. His name was Peter. You know, Peter, um, Jesus was, was being beaten. He was, he was being ridiculed. He was being pushed aside. He was, he was going to the cross, and as he was going to the cross, Peter was warming himself by the fire, and three times with three different people, they walked up to him and said, you are one of Jesus' followers. And what did he say? No, 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 I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know Jesus. In fact, a little girl even came up. I mean, he could have said, yeah, I do, but don't tell anybody. But no, he even told a little girl because he wanted to protect his reputation. I know nothing. And the third one, he even swore. I don't know him. I don't know Jesus. So when you look at that, you say, oh my goodness, it is horrible. And it absolutely is horrible. And I would say that it's in line with Judas. But let me tell you something. It's not about what you do more than with what you do with what you do. What happens is Peter had God, and his God was Jesus. And when it broke, when he missed the mark, he broke. He shattered before his God and said, I am sorry. Judas, when he did it, what happened? He didn't have a God. He didn't have a king. His his was money. He just went out and hung himself because nothing else could have saved him. Peter knew that he was saved by the blood of the lamb and therefore he can go to Jesus and what? His sins being completely washed away. See, what happens is confessing our sins is not because God needs our confession. We need to know who our king is. We need to know who our God is. And when we say, God, I am sorry for doing this, what are you doing? You're making a statement. You are king of kings. You are Lord of lords. And I don't want this sin to rule me. But what do we do often is it's really easy to say, well, let's water it down. It's not that big of a deal. Well, we can justify it or we can make an excuse for it. The steps of watering down, justifying or making an excuse for it or getting rid of that conscience is a step that I'm going to walk under a domain because what's going to take place is God will always test you. Always test me to see who our king is, to see who our Lord is. In fact, every sin is practically a test to say, who's your king? Who's your Lord? Are you going to confess it or are you not? That's what it's going to be. It's not that you have to confess every sin to get into heaven or it's not going to be forgiven. But when you confess, you're saying, I lay my life down at Jesus' feet. He's my king. He's my Lord. Number eight, hold on to the gospel with a death grip. If you do not want anything to have a domain over you. Give you a fast story that took place quite a few years ago, maybe it's like 20 years ago now, is that um, I, I do a lot of rafting, and when I was younger, I did more rafting of different rivers, and I always wanted to go on the wild rivers. And uh, one of the wild rivers I wanted to go on was the Illinois River. You know, I heard that somebody ended up dying on the Illinois River. And when I was young and stupid, that was like, oh boy, I got to raft the Illinois. You know, just in a sense of, you know, it's wild, it's crazy. Got to do it. We got to see it. So it's something I can't do by myself. Uh, so I needed somebody that um, was experienced that had gone before. So I ended up calling um, uh, somebody because I heard that they, they rafted the Illinois River. So I called this person. And I said, hey, I heard you raft the Illinois River. I want to go with you. He says, oh, I don't go. He goes, I did go one time, but I went with somebody else. If you want to raft the Illinois River, you need to go with that guy. So I said, okay, well, give me his name. So I called him and said, hey, you don't, you, you don't know me and I don't know you, but I want to raft the Illinois River with you. And he says, oh, okay, well, we don't do it in the fall. We'll do it in the spring. You can come in the spring. We'll give you a call then. 
he calls me back in the spring. He says, hey, I'm not rafting the Illinois River, but I know somebody else is rafting the Illinois River. Do you want to go with him? I said, just tell me where to go, and I'll be there. And so sure enough, I show up at the river, and when I show up at the river, uh, the guy that I'm supposed to raft behind, he rafts one, I take my raft, I go behind, um, um, says, so how do you know, you know, Beanie Moore, which is the guy in the front, you know, he's the kind of the middle guy, and I says, I don't know Beanie Moore. He goes, well, what are you doing here? I said, I'm just coming, coming to raft with you. He goes, oh, really? And then he looked at me, he says, well, what kind of rivers have you rafted before? And I gave him my list of, of rivers, and, and as I gave him my list of rivers, he kind of looked at me, he says, but you've never done this one. I said, no, I've never done this one. He says, you better watch out because this river will eat you. Be careful. This river will eat you. I'm like, okay, don't worry. Just tell me what to do and I'll, I'll, I'll do it all right. I was young. I was stupid. You don't be able to do it. So he said, stay on my tail and don't make any mistakes. Said, okay, I'll stay on your tail and not make any mistakes. So he started rafting. And it was a very, very intense river. But I was keeping up and I was keeping up really good until we got to the worst rapid. It's called the Green Wall. And the green wall is where there's a big, huge rapid that takes a turn around a corner, and that was the easy part. The hard part is it drops with one big hole and then goes down a 100-yard gauntlet, and then there's another drop at the end. And so that first drop is really intense, and the last drop is intense, but those aren't the scary part. The scary part is the water boils off the wall slamming into the wall. So the hydraulics are huge, and if you don't have control of your boat, where's your boat going to go? It's going to go into the wall. And if it goes into the wall, chop liver, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, it's, you know, look out. You're not going to have much there. In other words, it's not going to be good. So we scouted it. I looked at it and said, okay, I can do it. I have to hit this point, this point, this point. It can be done. So sure enough, I hit the first hole. Remember, right at the top of the gauntlet, hit the first hole, getting ready to go down the gauntlet. But when I came out of that first hole, that first drop, my oar lock pulled up, popped out, and then rolled down my oar and then dropped in the water. And it was not my oar, it was my oar lock, meaning I lost complete control of my raft and I knew exactly where I was going to go. I was going to go into the wall, which is called the green wall, where I do not want to be. And the first thing that hit my mind was, keep air in my lungs as long as I possibly can because I'll be going into it. So as I was looking at going into it, I noticed a rock right in front of my boat. And what I mean by rock is you have fast, fast water going on both sides, and this rock is just hanging up a little bit with water rushing on both sides. And what did I do? I jumped ship (laughs) right in the middle of the rapid. I jumped off my raft, I grabbed a hold of that rock, and I grabbed it as hard as I possibly could. And as I gr- hang on to it as hard as I possibly could, all the people that I was with start running up to say, um, you know, try to give me instructions to see if I can get out of this. So they come up to give me instructions. And I don't know if it was instructions or not, because they came out and says, what are you doing, you idiot? <laughs> and uh, we told you not to mess with this rapid. And I'm just like, yeah, like I really want to be here right now <laughs> with absolutely no boat, no nothing, just this simple rock knowing that if I let go of it, then, you know, then I'm dead. Well, just to give you a fast story, just to finish it up, they threw me lines, and we organized getting the raft and getting off the rock, and, and I survived. I don't know, just want to tell you that. I, I did survive, you know, after that, that whole ordeal. But I tell you that story is because on that rock, my fingerprints are in it. <laughs> Deep. I don't know, three, four inches. I mean, if we go back and look at it. I hung on to that thing with, with, with my dear life. Because it was my lifeline. And my wife was pregnant at the time. That even makes it worse, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it, was my, it was my lifeline. And I was not going to let go of it. If there is 
any lifeline that is out there for a believer, for anybody in this entire world, it is the gospel. Everything meets directly at the gospel. When you sin, where do you go? You go to the gospel, the blood of Jesus Christ. When you feel like I'm lost and I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, go to the gospel. You'll find peace, you'll find rest, you'll find salvation, you'll find everything you need need because it's there that your sins have been forgiven and it's there you have embraced, uh, is where Jesus has embraced you as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus has embraced you. Where you have embraced Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, it's all in that spot. Go to the gospel. Hang on to it with a desk. Number nine, use your trials as an evaluation tool to see if you have something else on your throne besides God. Trials is what? Trials is a loss of a love. I would just say trials is a loss of a God that you could be worshiping. And when trials take place, you lose your comfort, you lose your health, you lose your security, you lose all these things that, that you love I will tell you that your God will arise, very similar to the way Jesus is arise. And, and when your God arise, make sure it's Jesus. Do an evaluation. Make sure that it's Jesus. Don't let anybody else be your king of kings or anything. Be your kings, be your lord, be your master, be your savior, be your ruler. Put God in your throne and say, God, you are the one. You are the one that drives me. You're the one that sends me. You're the one that saves me. That is the challenge. Let's pray. God, in this fight against sin, I just pray that we will not be consumed with it, that we will not embrace another God besides you, that something else will not be the dominant source of our life, will not be the king, the Lord, the master, the ruler, the savior of our life. God, salvation is ours by embracing you. And I just pray, God, that, um, that the Holy Spirit would fill us and every time sin takes place, conviction would happen. Because, God, we do not want to be on a slippery slope and embrace something else besides you. Be our king, be our Lord, be our master, be our savior. In Christ's name, amen.